Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I always enjoy calling on Brother Thomas Burnett for prayer. He's been a member of this church longer than many of us, maybe most of us, have been alive. And if you haven't done this, I would remind you to ask Brother Thomas something about the blessings of the Lord's house over the course of his life. He can tell you a long testimony of many blessings he's had in the Lord's house. And some of us may be coming to the very beginning of this in our lives, but there are those who have had a long testimony over the course of their lives, and they can tell you what a wonderful thing it's been to their lives and what an effect it's had in their world. That's a good testimony. One of the things I really enjoy about the church and I, I try to encourage people to do is I try to encourage people to have cross-generational relationships within the church. Very important. I think a lot of times the way we set up school and the way maybe other churches practice at times, they tend to stratify people by age. And there is a lot of benefit in being a person of one age and speaking to a person of another age. If you're young and you only speak to people who are your age, you're likely to get only foolish ideas that arise out of the minds of young people. And where you're going to find more wisdom is in building relationships that cross generations. The older people have a tendency to think, well, you know, I'm not that useful anymore. I can't do the things I once did. Maybe I'm not as physically capable as I used to be. And it's easy to lose sight of the amount of wisdom that you've acquired over the course of many, many decades of life. And there's a useful purpose in God's people, particularly older ones, in being purposeful about talking to the younger people. Now, those younger people may at times think, oh, this is kind of old guy. He's telling me this stuff. I don't know that they know what they're talking about. But it's kind of like casting your bread upon the waters in some respects. There's times where maybe that's not particularly well received in the moment, or maybe it seems like a child may be glossing over those things, not paying much attention. But it's funny how many of those things lodge in the minds of God's children. And maybe a little later on in life, they realize, you know, Brother Thomas Burnett said this to me many years ago. I kind of thought it was silly. But now I'm in a situation, and I realize that what he told me is true. So... I encourage these cross-generational relationships in the church and encourage you to reach out to those who are younger and older than you. And I think you will find it really enriches your spiritual experience to experience the entire spiritual family of God up and down the chain of various ages. You'll learn a lot from it. And you may be a blessing to others in imparting some of the wisdom that you've acquired. That is not my topic, however. I'm starting in Luke chapter 6. I want to talk a little bit about... The foundation and the pillars. We have people who are joining with the Lord's Church today in baptism, and we will talk a little bit about the foundation and the pillars. It's not hard to find Christian people who are going to look around and say, you know, we're living in a very troubled world. If you just look at things that are going on in our world today and compare them to something as recently as maybe 20 years ago, things have gotten way worse in many respects just over the last 20 years in terms of ideas that are being presented in our society that would not have been controversial at all to object 20 years ago. And now if you uh, reject some of these ideas, they're making you out to be a horrible person, right? You're a bigot. I present that 
not because that's my topic today, but just to try to put some evidence before you that things have gotten a lot worse in our society in the last 20 years. If you went back further than that, there was a time when these pews on either side of me here actually had a purpose. You know, right now we've got some things stored underneath them, uh, things that we've done to, to work on the church and whatnot. Uh, that back pew right there holds the giant fly swatter that uh, Brother Leon invented to, to get rid of dirt daubers in here and things like that. But there was a time in this church, some of you are old enough to remember, where there were people sitting over there. So there's evidence even in our assembly today of how people have departed from the notion of thinking that church is important and being there and being involved. So it's something to keep in mind. In Luke chapter 6, I'm looking at verse 47. What are you going to build your life on top of? You know, we've all got to go out there and live our lives in the secular world and, and kind of make a living and, and be around people who maybe don't share our Christian faith. And, um, you know, at some point you have to kind of ask yourself, what am I going to build my life on top of? And there's any number of things that the world might offer up. They might tell you to, you know, go after the, the almighty dollar. Materialism. You want to have big cars and big houses and, and make a lot of money. Uh, hedonism is another one, right? Just go for all the pleasures of the world, right? Wine, women, and song is the way it's put in common parlance. And that's something that you, you ought to be going after. And you'll find many, many examples of that sort of religion being preached in our world. Those are religious ideas. That, and what I mean by that is they're ideas that a carnal man's mind will wrap itself around and start trying to say, that's what my life is all about. I'm really worshiping the idea of material pursuits. I'm worshiping the idea of pleasure and those sorts of things. And they're out there competing against the church, if you will, in the marketplace of ideas and even in the minds of God's people. We all have a carnal nature. And in some respect, the appeals of hedonism and materialism affect us as well. And so we have to be on guard against them and realize we need to be feeding the spiritual man rather than our carnal urges. But in chapter 6 and verse 47 in Luke, we see this. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Now, I think most of the times I've preached on this passage, my mind for some reason sort of sees Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's also recounted in the Gospel of Luke. And as I was studying this, there's a difference between what's said in Luke and what's said in Matthew. And the difference is this. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep. That draws out something here. This man knew there was a foundation. There was a rock underneath the surface of the earth, right? But if he was going to build his house on top of it, he was going to have to dig down to get to that rock that he could put the footings on. You see what I'm saying? It's not just going to happen by default. There's earth covering the rock. And in a similar fashion, 
The things of this earth stand between you and Christ in many respects in how you build your life. There's many, many impediments to setting your life on the rock. Now, in one sense, in the sense of our eternal salvation, we know that we're on the rock. Christ fulfilled the covenant, and we have eternal salvation, and there's no work involved in that. But this is talking about not your eternal salvation, but how are you going to live your life? This notion of building a house designs how are you going to build your life? What is your life going to be based upon? And I like this example here because of that digging deep. It makes the point that Christ is the rock, but in terms of building the affairs of this world, you're going to have to do some effort to make sure you're on the right footing. It's not just going to happen by default. You can't take the bricks or the stones you were going to use to to build the the foundation of your house and just say, eh, digging is a pain. You ever done any digging? I mean, it's a pain. If you have to dig something and it takes a long time, the earth is heavy and it's hard and you got to get out there and you'll wear you out trying to dig a hole. And if you're thinking about the foundation for a house, you're going to put some pillars down. You're thinking, man, it's not just one hole. And how far down do I go? Maybe it's four, three or four feet before I hit rock. You know, you can see how a lazy man or a short-sighted man might say, you know what? I'm just going to put these kind of on the earth there and, uh, you know, I'm going to save all that digging, right? That might work out well for a while, for a season, until the rains come and the, the grounds freeze and then unfreeze time and again and those piers that are just basically floating on top of the muddy earth, jello, basically, in a few years it's all shifting out of position and your house is all off kilter. And now you've got this big edifice that you've erected, thousands upon thousands of pounds of lumber and shingles and windows and appliances, and it's sitting on top of the mud, and it's all sliding out, and it's, the floors are uneven, and it's just an absolute mess. You've, you've spent all this effort building a life, but you didn't found it on the rock. That's a big problem once you've already erected a life on top of this thing because now it's not so easy to, to repair. You've got all this weight sitting there. You've got gravity working against you. When if you had put the effort in up front and maintained this idea that if I'm going to build this house, it's got to have a solid foundation. I've got to build my house on top of Christ and what He taught. Save yourself a tremendous amount of pain and anguish years down the road if the thing was put on a good foundation. You see that? So the work that we must do spiritually up front, there's some deep digging that goes on there. It's not a casual throwing of stones out into a little pile and then you start putting some timbers across it and thinking that's going to work out. The deceptive thing about this is that it does work, kind of, for a little while. You see what I'm saying? You might have one year where you put that house together and it's floating on top of the dirt and it's holding together pretty well. But it's the ravages of time coupled with the fact that it is not on a solid foundation that ultimately puts you in a terrible, terrible situation. So it's short-sighted for God's people to think about building a life. By the way, everybody's got to build a life, right? We all built homes, didn't we? Or we bought one that was built. 
None of us would think, well, I'm just going to be sleeping in a yurt tonight. I'm going to sleep out in the yard. I hope it doesn't get too cold this winter. We all have enough sense to know we've got to have some shelter and things like that. But in, a, in the same sense, we've got to build lives here. Lives that support our families and our children and our grandchildren. And we need to be thinking about that in the same way or with the same degree of rigor that maybe we do when we think about building a house. Some of y'all have built houses recently and you know foundations are important. Many people haven't built houses, but a lot of them have bought houses. And if you go and buy a house, you know, you have to have it inspected. And if the inspection is done correctly, they're going to go look at the foundation and they're going to tell you. There's a thing called a disclosure. They're supposed to tell you if there's something wrong with the foundation so that you can enter into this either knowing that I've got a foundation i got to repair or maybe you need to adjust the price because I'm going to have to do $10,000 worth of repair work. All these things are very evidently known by us in just the carnal day-to-day affairs of our lives. It would be silly to build a house with a terrible foundation or to buy one that was falling apart because of the foundation. And yet, I wonder if we have the same degree of wisdom when it comes to the lives that we must build in this world. Are we as rigorous in the inspection of what we're placing our lives on top of as we are the house that we purchased or the foundation that we built when we were building one? That's a very probing question and one that we should all consider because this is what the Lord is teaching. There is a foundation, and that foundation is Christ, and it's going to take some effort for you to get there. It's not just going to happen by default. You're not just going to bop along in life and your life is just going to be spiritually stable as you're just bouncing around from one carnal thing to another. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to put some effort in and try to put yourself on the foundation, which is Christ, as you build that life. Now, let's look over in Acts chapter 2, and I want to show you an example here of what was going on in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 2, and I'll pick up in about 37, verse 37. Now, this is the preaching on the day of Pentecost. So people who heard about God knew something about their own sin and heard that Christ had fixed the problem and also that they had been materially involved in the crucifixion of Christ in a very particular way. So they had heard gospel truth. They were convicted by it. And it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, we've heard this message. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. We're believing this message of God. We have faith. And we also see the bad things we've done in our lives that have opposed God. We've actually been working against Christ. Now, every Christian, to the extent that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Every Christian is enfranchised in this idea of, I've opposed God some in my life, right? Even the best people have urges and inclinations and have done things that are opposed to God's rule of things. That's, we're sinners and we need someone to come and fix that problem because we can't fix it ourselves. But these people heard it and they were particularly enfranchised this, maybe in a way that's unique that time. These people were actually kind of there rooting for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're like calling for the crucifixion of Christ. Now, all of our sins were the reason that Christ had to die anyway. So we're all enfranchised in Christ's crucifixion. We all have some blame in that matter based on our own sins. But 
These people were actually there and were opposing Christ. Now imagine if that was your testimony earlier in life. You've come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my Savior who died for my sins. And then you thought back just a few weeks ago, I was calling for His execution. That would be a tremendously troubling revelation, would it not? But it's true of all of us in some respect. Were it not for our sins, and Christ would not have had to bear them on the cross. So we see these men have conviction, and they're asking, what shall we do? We're in this predicament. We opposed Christ. We now believe this is the Christ, and we were the ones opposing it. What shall we do? You can almost hear the desperation in their voices. How do you fix this? Right? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, and even as many of the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. He's requiring something of them. Christ has paid for their sins. They make manifest that they have faith in this message. And if they have faith, they're born of the Spirit of God. And that's why they could receive this truth. Peter's calling on them to save themselves from something. And I submit to you, what he's talking about is the digging. Right? You're going to have to do something. If you're going to save yourself in a temporal sense, you're going to have to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like someone has said, you know what? There's a foundation down here that is Christ, and you can build a life on it, but there's a whole lot of earth between you and there. A whole lot of worldly things. You want to save yourself from being rocked around by all these earthly things, being slung around in the mud, having no foundation? Dig down and place your life on the rock, which is Christ. He's talking about the digging. Save yourselves. From this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So there were some people here who said, Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I want to follow the Lord in this. I want to save myself. I want to build a life on the foundation, which is Christ. They were willing to do that. 3,000 souls. In verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. So we talked about the foundation, which is Christ. And I'm going to submit to you that you can regard these four things as kind of pillars that are resting on Christ, right? If you want to build your life, and the church being an extension of what you need to have in your life. If you're going to build that on something. The rock is Christ, but the pillars that touch that rock are things like the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Those are four pillars that ought to undergird the substructure of your life. They're the connection of that first floor of your life to the rock. And to the extent that we dig down and set these things upon the rock, we're going to be a lot better in the long run. It's possible to not do that and have a storm and you're like, well, it's okay. It didn't move too much. But over time, that plays out and it catches up with you. And you're better off having a life that's founded 
on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And it talks about these items. The apostles' doctrine. Well, that's one of the reasons you come to church. The world, by default, is not serving up to you apostles' doctrine. It's serving up all manner of distractions, the carnal world. And the religious world broadly is trying to convince you that the apostles' doctrine is a bunch of stuff you need to do in order to get eternally saved. But this is the apostles' doctrine. It's what they taught. It's the grace of Christ is what Paul referred to it as. And not just the message of our salvation by grace and an everlasting covenant, but also the doctrines that accompany how we ought to live our lives. Those are things that connect us to Christ and give us a solid foundation. Fellowship. Well, I spoke a little bit about that during the introduction to the services today. And fellowship is incredibly important. It's one of the reasons that it's so important that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves because being together with God's people is a tremendous source of strength. Maybe it strengthens you in ways you don't even realize sometimes. Well, whether you realize it or not, fellowship is important. That's why I encourage us to stay for lunch and try to talk to one another, become enfranchised in each other's lives, understand what's going on with one another. Because in your Christian walk, it's easy to begin to feel isolated. When you're out there brokering in the world, as we all do, and you're surrounded by maybe unbelievers or people who are not really founded on the rock, you can feel as though, you know, I'm kind of a lone wolf out here. Sometimes I feel like there's not anybody who really believes what I believe, and it's, it's unsettling. It's disturbing. But to come back together in fellowship and spend time talking to your brothers and sisters in Christ and really hear that they have struggles and they have their issues and you can tell them what yours are and you can share with one another. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. And we need to be praying for one another. It's refreshing and encouraging and very important. It talks about the breaking of bread. Now there is an element of fellowship that is breaking bread in an informal sense, such as when we have lunch together a couple times a month here and maybe in other smaller settings, but I think this is in particular maybe speaking of the communion service and the particular fellowship we have there. So there are ordinances of the church. These people had been baptized, right? So it doesn't mention baptism here. Baptism, however, is an ordinance of the church. It's not mentioning it here because it's talking about people who'd already been baptized, right? So this is part of their practice. They're breaking bread together. They're getting together for the communion service as we do. They're breaking bread and meditating on the fact that this is Christ's body which was broken for us. They're partaking of the wine in recollection of Christ's shed blood on their behalf. It's a sober service where we really think about what's been done. You know, our lives are full of distractions. It's easy to forget about this broken body and shed blood of Christ and what that actually means for us for all eternity. We don't ever, I think, see that to the degree that it's possible maybe to see it, but I'm sure we will understand it better farther along. There's this breaking of bread, and there is a special aspect of fellowship that I've come to know that exists in the communion service. As we break bread, partake of the wine, wash one another's feet, there is in this an act of humility that 
I've found to be incredibly humbling and touching in my own life, but not so much because it, it's humbling to me. It's because I've been more moved by the idea that my brothers and sisters would want to wash my feet. And then you think about, if I can be that moved by some fellow sinner washing my feet and having communion with me and just the affirmation that we have that we believe, how much more so to think that Christ knelt and washed His disciples' feet. It's a very sobering thing. And I can tell you that I personally feel closer to each and every one of you in this church that I've been in a communion service with. There's something very special about that. I I don't have a particularly great memory. And the older I get, I start to forget more things. But I remember some things that have happened in communion services here very vividly to such a degree that I think there's something going on there spiritually in my life. There was a spiritual blessing in memory that I have of a seemingly insignificant by world standards. Maybe just something that was said, a simple gesture here or there, and I remember it as if I was there in the moment. These things build fellowship and they're part of the pillars that connect us to Christ. You want a life that's connected to Christ and you don't have the breaking of bread or fellowship, well, you're going to have a foundation that's a little bit off kilter, right? I mean, you can be someone who says, well, I've got the apostles' doctrine, but I don't really have to be connected to the church. Well, that's like buying that house that had, well, you know, it's got two of the pillars are in great shape. One of them's not even connected to anything, just sitting on the dirt. You really need all these pillars if you're going to have a solid foundation. They need to all be touching the rock, and every single one of them needs to be there. And the last one here is prayers. It is very helpful for people to know that you're praying for one another. And I try to encourage you all. I know we've spent time in in recent weeks and trying to be better about prayer requests and following through with that. I appreciate the efforts that everyone's had about trying to be mindful of the prayer requests that are out there. It's important that we pray for one another. It's encouraging to those who need prayer to pray for them and to let them know they're praying for them. I mean, that's kind of a gesture of intimacy when you say to somebody, you know, I I remember that you said this and I'm praying for you. A lot of times that fellowship comes into play too. It's like, I'm praying for you because about 10 years ago I had this situation going. It was very similar. That's beginning to build much more closeness. I mean, we're a family here. That's the thing we have to keep in mind. The church is a family, and these things all build intimacy with one another in the church, and they connect us to Christ. It says in verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Sounds like they had done away with materialism that affects people so readily, right? They were, they were kind of like, you know, we need to be taking care of one another and not so worried about material things. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. It's really important that we recognize the connection we have in the church. 
The church is said to be the pillar and ground of truth. A nominal church, if you can use the term, you can't just stick the name of church on any assembly of people and say, well, that's a church and it's the pillar and ground of truth. That's not necessarily true. There's churches out there that haven't got any foundation. They're not really sitting on Christ in the sense that, let's look at the apostles' doctrine. Well, they might not even have that pillar at all. There's huge churches in the world today that say, it's really not about what the Bible teaches. It's what the Bible teaches plus our tradition. And what that means is, we've got a veto against the Word of God. We can say, well, we decided a thousand years ago that this part of the Word of God is not really in effect anymore because our tradition says we're going to do it a different way. And just like that foundation that's not sitting on the rock which is Christ, when you don't have the Apostles' doctrine, you're on a muddy foundation and it can change and drift and be here and there. And you stretch that out over 2,000 years, 1,500 years, whatever it's been, and you've got, at least in that portion, you've got a, a piece of it that's drifted and it's, it's just not stable anymore. So it's very important that we connect ourselves to Christ, and the church is intended to do that. It's said to be the pillar and ground of truth. It's very important. If you worry about the effects of a wicked world on your family, on your children, on your grandchildren, work on connecting. Maybe we need to do some digging, right? Maybe we need to dig down, make sure that we are resting our lives on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. And we do that through those pillars. Well, those things are important, but as we close, I want to look over in Luke chapter 15 and look at this one example. You know, having baptisms is a, is a joyful thing. I know everybody here is excited today that we have people joining the church, and it's exciting to me. I've been kind of anxious about it all week. Luke chapter 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Well, praise God. Jesus Christ accepts sinners and eats with them. If you've ever thought, I am such a sinner, I'm totally unworthy, you should be delighted to hear that Jesus Christ accepts sinners and eats with them. Not like He just accepts them on some legal basis, but I don't want to be seen with them. He's going to sit down and eat with them. That's a blessing to God's people. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now the evident statement that he's making there is, of course, if you're a shepherd and you've lost a sheep, you're going to go out and find it. You don't just say, well, that's the way it goes. That's a terrible shepherd. By the way, the Jesus who's supposed to be the good shepherd, yea, the great shepherd that is preached in the world today, is a shepherd of this sort, apparently. He's someone who has a bunch of sheep, but he loses a whole bunch of them. He doesn't go out and find them, right? The evident precept here is that if there is a good shepherd, he keeps up with the sheep. If one goes off, he's going to go get him and bring him back. He doesn't allow sheep to just drift out of the fold, right? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. You see, there's something beautiful in people coming to a place where they say, I'm a sinner. I want to be identified with the Lord's sheep. I want to be gathered in with them, 
and there's rejoicing in it and joy in it. And I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now I'm glad that those of you who are members of the church today are here. I'm joyful in that. But on this day, I'm more joyful to see people coming into the church. There's a joy in that. It says there's joy in heaven over it. That's right. I don't know what that means. I've heard people preach that, you know, former members of this church are aware of this service going on right now. I can't preach that. I don't know that that's true. I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know. But it says there's joy in heaven over it. I know this much. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And those who come forward in faith are bringing forth evidence that they've been touched by the Spirit of God. And those acts of faith are pleasing to God. So whether those who have gone before us and are in heaven today who are members of this church know about this service and are rejoicing in it, I cannot say, but I know this much. Faith pleases God. And those who exercise faith in the waters of baptism are pleasing to God. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.